Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So you hear a lot about foraging in the animal behavior literature. And it is interesting behavior. It's food finding, and if you don't find food, you die. So it's clearly going to be important. Uh, foraging is sort of a two-way street, though. There has to be a foragee as well. Someone's going someone's to die. Now, this might be a plant. You know, you, you can prey on plants. You also can prey on animals. But you're, so this is where you've got uh, an interesting sort of two-way street going on here where you've got both the animal that's doing the hunting, that hunting, again, may simply be looking for seeds. And then you've got the organism, plant, animal, whatever, that's getting consumed. The animal or plant that's getting consumed probably doesn't want to get consumed. So there are going to be strategies that have evolved in the foragee to defeat the forager. And then there are strategies for the forager to fight the foragee, to find them. So it's cool because we can look at sort of a coevolution where one's evolving and the other one's evolving over time, and it's almost like an arms race. So I'm trying to find you, and you're always trying to make sure either you can hide or you can fight me or whatever. So you might end up with armor plating, you might end up being camouflaged, etc. So there's all kinds of ways to go here, and that's what makes this stuff I think, pretty cool. So the prey species have evolved, of course, as well. They're going to have strategies for, and again, these are evolutionary strategies. They, they might be within an animal's lifetime, uh, but typically that's not what we're going to talk about here today. We're going to talk about the strategies that have evolved over time in prey species. Interesting thing, of course, is that most species are predators and prey. Rarely is it the case that you have a top of the food chain kind of thing that doesn't ever get prey upon. You could say we're the top of that now that we don't get preyed upon anymore, we, but we did for a very long period of time. I don't think bears are getting taken down a whole lot in Ontario, except by people. Right? We don't have any very big cats that are running around taking down, say, bears. There's another one you could think of sharks, not a lot of animals taking down sharks. But for the most part, Anything below that in the sort of food chain, you're going to have both your forager and potentially the forager. Here's some possible strategies. You look at a group. Um, living in a, in, a, in a group would be something, we call it the selfish herd. You think living in a group, wouldn't that be great? Because we're all in a group. And nature's a wonderful socialist paradise. And what's going to happen is that we'll all be friends and we'll all help each other and bullshit. You know what it is? If there's something chasing all of us, I don't have to outrun it. I just have to outrun the slowest one of you. Right? It's like that old joke when the guy stops to tie his shoes and they're being chased by a bear. That's says, what are you doing? It's not going to help me outrun the bear. He says, no, it's not going to help me outrun you. <laughs> so if we, live in, if we live in a herd, it's actually a selfish thing to live in a herd, even though it sounds like all of us are cooperative. 
So you think herding animals or flocking animals, really it's, it's pretty much a selfish thing. So that's one thing you can do, just look at a great big group. Because the cheetah that's coming after you can't eat all of you. Another approach could be camouflaged. I've talked uh, before about the salt and pepper moth, the classic example of evolution that we can see, where you have the salt and pepper moth in Britain that up against the birch tree looks like birch bark. You can't, you can turn, you can but you gotta get really close. On the other hand, then of course, after time, as we know, that the soot from the Industrial Revolution gets all over the trees, and the moths that have more black than white end up getting selected for and you end up with black moths or smoke camouflage. And you can think of a lot of different camouflage strategies than this. Right? Have you ever seen the uh, insect called walking stick? Yeah. yeah, they look like sticks, except that they walk. Or you can think of uh, a lot of moths, in fact, are pretty well camouflaged. You can think of a chameleon that can change the colors of its, it can change its coloration, right? Now, Believe me, chameleons, if you put a chameleon on this table, it doesn't become, it doesn't look like this fake marble for my figure. Okay, it's not, it's not like they show it on the cartoons where it goes on the Scottish guy's kilt and it's suddenly flat. But they do change color. So the octopuses, right, so you see this in all over the animal kingdom. You're also going to see it in plants. <coughs> Right? Think about a seed that hits the ground. If I'm the plant, I don't want that seed eaten. Do I? My, my hope, not that plants hope, you understand this is over evolutionary time. My hope is that the seeds end up germinating and growing and passing on my genes. So I could have seeds that looked a lot like the background, whatever that background may be. It could be uh, you know, grass or, 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 or dirt or whatever. Oh, I get an armor. That's another one. Turtles. Turtles move slowly. But turtles have shells. I'm not really including here things like, you know, lobsters and such, because frankly, that's, that's their skeleton. They have an exoskeleton. But think about something like a turtle. It actually has armor. You fight back. It's another strategy. Get really big teeth. Right? Or powerful claws. Things like that. Or, if you think about it, it kind of goes hand in hand with the idea you just don't taste good. If you don't taste good, in other words, if you, you evolved something that is poisonous, you won't tend to taste good. Because all animals that taste things, which is pretty much all of them, have evolved mechanisms. They, 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 they find things that, are, that they need tasty, and things that they don't need that, are, in fact, are bad for them, not tasty. So this is one way, in fact, you can fight back. And you can fight back by becoming poisonous. Right? You can fight back by being poisonous. We've talked about monarch butterflies. Monarch butterflies are poisonous. They actually eat something that even if you ate it, you'd get sick of milkweed. They've over time evolved a mechanism for detoxifying milkweed. They actually aren't poisonous. If you get a monarch butterfly and don't give it milkweed, it will not, it'll be delicious. 
Ted Wells, and which uses a butterfly. I think I've seen an episode of the reservations where Tony Bourdain was eating that butterflies. I imagine there's one out there. Nocturnal birds are quite good at it, but most of your diurnal birds are just most birds, frankly, my thing about saying songbirds, pretty much all of them, they are very good at smelling at all. Or tasting really. Though they can taste things that are poisonous. So the ones that don't taste and smell well, do they eat a wider range of things? That's a good question. When we guess that, I don't know the answer to that. But yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine. Or they would specialize in one kind of food. Right? Because if you evolve over time, then you're just going to eat a certain kind of bug larvae. Uh, it's a pretty good guess that that kind of bug larvae is actually useful. Of course, the danger of being specialized like that is if that animal changes, you're gone. Right? So that's only going to show up in a very stable environment. You would think in, in a tropical environment, perhaps a desert. Anything that's nice and warm and pretty steady. It wouldn't be, say, around here. You can also not taste... Yes, it's not taste good, but you could be... You give a defense mechanism like, for example, um, there are Australian toads that secrete a hallucinogenic drug called bufotenine. And in fact, it's very similar to, the effect it has is very similar to dropping acid. Now you might think, well, maybe that'd be fun, but not if you're a kangaroo. It's cool when you're a human, maybe, you go, dude, I can hear colors. But it's not pleasant, one would imagine, for a wombat. I did just name an Australian predator. <laughs> or a dingo. Because as we all know, only dig- dingoes only eat babies. <laughs> Get the reference? Good. Okay. So you could, your, your defense mechanism could just be something in fact, it, in fact humans might find pleasant. And this, of course, where the legend of toad licking comes from. The idea that people in Australia were all over the place in the game toads. Um, are the toads available? Yeah. Pretty common. Is LSD also available in Australia? I think so. I don't think a lot of people are actually licking toads. There probably are people, but it was picked up when this was the start. And the article gets published in, in Science or Nature. It's a really big publication. Then, of course, you know, the, the, the popular media pick it up and expect a, an epidemic of toad licking in Australia. Was there an epidemic? No. Did people lick toads? I have friends in Australia who said, yeah, I know people that lick toads. <clears throat> Somehow it does sound safer than getting something that you could make with grade 9 level lab bench skills, LSD. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe... Uh, but, but it's an interesting defense mechanism. Right? You think of the coffee plant. Um... Most animals don't find getting a, a caffeine buzz pleasant. You think of tobacco. 
Nothing else in jet, well, there are certain uh, bugs that will ingest tobacco leaves. Yeah, that's true. But you don't see cows grazing on tobacco. It's unpleasant to eat nicotine. Frankly, it's unpleasant for humans, even people that smoke, to eat nicotine. So you can even just be not so much poisonous, but have a level of something that's unpleasant. Right? So a lot of the drugs we have may very well simply be um, defense mechanisms for plants. Alright. So one thing to talk about here, not tasting good, um, is of course aposematism, which is some insects are they taste bad and they're really obvious about it. And the classic example here's our friendly monarch butterfly. Um, and they would die if they consist of plants that don't taste good to the predator. They don't taste good because they're poisonous. And again, as I've told you before, uh, monarchs eat milkweed. So being brightly colored and ornamented and being poisonous is something called aposematism. A lot of bugs are aposematic. You will see, you'll see little caterpillars that are all kinds of bright colors. They got horns. Like little horns sticking out. All kinds of great stuff. And they're poisonous. So it's like basically advertising, don't eat me, don't eat me. You know who I am, don't eat me. Right? We can ask a couple of evolutionary questions about how did this tastefulness evolve? Because that's pretty. That's a pretty big evolutionary. Mm, I don't want to say effort, but I will. To detoxify a plant. So that's an interesting question. And then why be so obvious about it? I mean, we can say yeah, it's going to lead to learning. We can make all these guesses, but maybe we can actually collect some data to determine. What's going on here? So question one, and that's how did the atmosphere, oh sorry, how did the distastefulness evolve? It should increase the probability of the prey surviving. Right? That's, that's a given. But for it to work, a predator is going to have to eat one of these guys. So it can learn this. We're not going to have, say, you know, blue jays or whatever have them hardwired to detect monarch butterflies. They're going to have to learn this in their lifetime. They're going to have to learn this in their lifetime. So the predator has to sample a prey item in order to learn that it will get sick. So a blue jay isn't going to avoid monarch butterflies until it eats a monarch butterfly and pukes. Then it's like never again. Right? The experience that I had, for example, with tequila. Or I had with lemon gin. That sounds terrible. Lemon gin? Oh, really? Oh, it's delicious. Except that when you have way, way, way too much of it when you're 17. I used to go to the liquor store and actually not be able to look at the bottle. I worked hard, though, and now I'm quite a fan of gin. Damn it, I'm going to get through this problem. Buy more gin. But 
specifically, you know about this, right? You don't know that you don't like tequila until you do a whole bunch of tequila shots one night, get sick, and then suddenly you don't blame the liquor, you blame the tequila. So you'll have a glass of beer, a bottle of beer, a glass of wine, you'll, 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 you'll have a, some vodka, but it's like, oh, no, I can't drink tequila. It makes me sick. No, it doesn't. It's the alcohol. <laughs> so that's what has to happen here is that, that you know, some dumb blue jay, some dumb teenage blue jay has to go, yeah, I'm going to eat one of these butterflies. Wakes up the next morning, I'm never eating one of those again. So he's got to learn. So how does the fitness of the prey to increase if it's been eaten? You would imagine that once something's eaten, its fitness pretty much becomes steady. It's, it's, it's not going to reproduce anymore if it's in the animal's gut. Is this a species-level selection thing where we ask, well, we're doing this one for the good of the team? I'm doing this to help monarch butterflies. Well, we've already talked about how species-level selection uh, usually isn't true. Because what do we need? Remember, we need one lazy bastard. We need one... It's very easy for a selfish version to show up and spread very quickly, and then the behavior or the coloration or whatever disappears. So it's very unlikely that it's species selection. So let's look at individual-level selection. By the way, the number of people in the world that think that evolution works at the species level I find so disturbing. Well, they're doing that for the good of their species. No, they're not. I think, in fact, this is one of the reasons it's very hard for... hard to get people to do things for other people. Hard to get people to, you know, save on electricity and, and recycle. It's because it's like, well, why am I doing this? Well, it's for the good of the environment. That doesn't work, right? Because we're selfish. You know, it works. You make electricity more expensive. Suddenly people stop using so much. You know, when you allow two cans of garbage a week, suddenly you stop, you start recycling a lot. All right. Applesomatic bugs are gregarious. Does that mean they move groups? So here's a pretty good hint how it's going to be answered. So usually, a monarch butterfly is going to be surrounded by siblings. Ah, king's lecture. Okay, now this starts to make some sense. And if I've got hundreds of brothers and sisters around me, me giving up my life, so these blue, this blue jay learns never to eat bugs that look like me, that's a good thing, because most of the bugs that look like me around here, I'm relating to. Suddenly, it makes a great deal of sense. So if only a few of the brood are eaten, the frequency of the distasteful gene, and it, it's probably not a single gene, but just for simplicity's sake, the frequency of the distasteful gene is going to spread. So this, and of course, it's not really a distasteful gene, it's a gene to eat milkweed, which is actually poison to most of other animals. Let's just for shorthand, we're going to call that the distasteful gene. It's not just one gene, and it's not really a gene for being distasteful. Make sense? Yeah. Fish 
Fisher, Fisher's all over the place. First kin selection model. Fisher invented analysis of variance. That's why it's called an F test. For those of you that have taken 3256, the bane of your existence, R.A. Fisher. So it's one of the first kin selection models. Dave? Yep. I still wonder how, how the, um, the distasteful gene will spread. Well, it's going to spread because, look, if we're distasteful over here, we're the, we're the distasteful family. And they are. So they don't taste bad. They also don't have the bright colors and stuff. We've got all that good stuff. Blue Jay comes along and eats me. Well, I'm dead, but now the Blue Jay is throwing up. Blue Jay's not going to eat any of us anymore. Now, the interesting thing is that because we live, we're gregarious, we live in family groups, we're all brothers and sisters. So I've given up my life, but it's 0.5 for a brother, 0.5 for a sister. Okay, those, these two guys are one of me, then these two guys are one of me, and these two guys are one of me. One of me is dying, and three of me is still out there. So, um, those kind of genes evolve by watching them? By what? By watching the, um, the Well, no, it would just be, you know, it's random chance, of course, but because we're distasteful, <laughs> we guys over here, when one of us gives up our life, now the one predator that's eaten one of us will never go near any of our brothers or sisters ever again. With these guys over here, They're not distasteful and brightly colored. One guy eats one of them, they don't learn anything. In fact, what he does is he goes, oh, you, and you, and you, and you. So they're learning? The, the birds are learning. The predators are learning. Yes, not to eat. It's interesting because the, pre, the selection pressure is the predator's behavior in the, in the animal's lifetime. But then we can look at it over evolutionary time and say, it's going to spread now because who wins? I died. But you guys all have the distasteful gene and you have young and you pass it on. They're all dead because they taste good. So the distasteful gene now spreads. Yeah. Now, why be so obvious? Now, it should also be noticed that, noted that not all distasteful prey are obvious. Not all of them are aposematic. So... There's a lot of animals that taste bad that aren't brightly colored. So that might be so obvious about it. And of course, we've already talked about this, is the idea of learning. Uh, most are, but not all. There are two possible explanations. It could be the contrast with the background. Okay? It makes learning easier than learning about cryptic prey. Cryptic prey are ones that have, that, that have camouflage. So, you know, it's just more obvious. The stimulus is more salient if you go back to those guys that took learning history. Gibson had, um, and I think these were chickens he used, blue, green, or red millet on a green dot background. Have you ever seen millet? They're very tiny little seeds. We used to feed them to our jungles. They're little tiny seeds, and they actually take dye very well. White millet, you can use food coloring and dye it very easily. Uh, we played with this kind of stuff when I was in grad school. So what you have now is you have a Blue or green or red millet, and you have a background that has green dots. So, 
If what the animal sees is a square grid that has green dots all over it, so those are your dots, but then there's your millet, and it's the same color, that's cryptic. You can't tell where it is. If it's blue, it's a little cryptic. Green and blue are kind of similar. If it's red, it's exactly the opposite. It's very obvious. So, do you understand the idea here? What this is testing is, does learning increase with when you have background that's, that's um, beer content? Okay? That's what's being tested here. So Gibson, this is actually quite neat. This grain is soaked in quinine first. Now, quinine is exceedingly sort of sour. It's unpleasant tasting. You know, tonic water? Right? Mixed with gin. See, it's all about gin today. You, make, you, know, you know the taste of tonic water when you just drink tonic water? When you don't have gin with it and a bit of wine? Unpleasant. Now, if you take that and use, because it's got quinine in it, right? Tonic water has quinine. It's called tonic water because the Brits developed it when they discovered it helped with malaria. And it was a tonic. And then they mixed it with gin because that's what Brits do when they live in, 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 in India. And they developed a drink that also had medicinal qualities. Britain has given us many great things. Parliamentary democracy and gin and tonic being two of them. If you take this grain and you soak it in quinine and have little chickens eating it, they won't like it. Okay. Now, what we have here is this little feeding platform in this box. And the chicks are shown either red or green or blue millet on a green dot background. But as soon as they see red ones, oh yeah, this way, I'm sorry, I screwed up. This, these aren't yet the ones that are with quinine. That's a different experiment. Uh, we'll get there, so the explanation of quinine is fine. This one is unpleasant because you can never eat it. So the only reason, this doesn't taste bad, it's just that you never get to eat it. You get to eat one, and the, and the little platform drops away, and the bird never gets to eat it. Right, the quinine stuff comes later. So the birds stopped eating red seeds. They only ate the blue and the green seeds. Make sense? Even with my mistake? <laughs> okay. And it's not the background per se, because the cryptic ones were still eaten. The blue and the green ones, and blue is a little cryptic because blue is kind of similar to green, and green on green is, is completely cryptic. They were still eaten. So that's the first indication that being quite different, or aposematic in this case, you want to call it that, I got that in quotes because it isn't tasting bad again. Remember, we'll, we'll get there in a second with the point. These are just, this grain's unpleasant because you don't get to eat it. 
So they haven't learned about the background. They haven't learned don't eat. They've learned don't peck at red once. There is a problem there, obviously, in that experiment. Can anybody see what the problem was there? Making the conclusion that being really different from the background is hard to... And it makes it... Um, makes the, the platform disappear. So the conclusion then is that being different from the, back, the background um, makes it easier to learn. Well, the big problem is they didn't try that with green ones. Disappearing. The blue ones disappearing. Only red ones. Right? It's a nice experiment. It was a nice first attempt. Got published. Way to go. Doesn't answer the whole question. Um, in Gilman and Harvey, this is 1980, and that's Paul Harvey, quite a famous biologist. Um, we've got two backgrounds. We've got a blue background. Okay. Um, we've got Green food and blue food. Blue food and green food. So we've got a green background. That's the green background. That's the blue background. Now these are cryptic and distasteful. In other words, these these are the ones now that we have taken. I think these are little seeds. Yeah, and they're little chicks. And they are now these are the ones that are so important. So they're also distasteful. The key thing here is being distasteful and being obvious. See, they're taking fuel here. Green on blue. Right? Green on blue, what's that mean? That means that we have obvious and you taste bad. Here's the, uh, I think it's a neutral background here. And if I can get switched around. Okay. What Sarah Shuttleworth, I'm just going to picture for us. I mean, Sarah, one of the, she was working on this earlier in her career, and then in fact came back to it later. This is one of the first things she, in fact, I believe this is Sarah's PhD thesis. Um, the chicks learned to avoid unpalatable water if it was a novel color other than the one that they were raised on. So they were given, so it's a novel color, so they're raised on different colored waters. And then given choices. And they can only, they can learn to avoid unpalatable water if it was a new color, something they hadn't seen before. So the key wasn't, according to Sarah, the key isn't contrasting with the novelty. Oh, that's different, so it's obvious. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's her PhD thesis. And she was giving them water that tasted like quinine. So basically non-carbonated tonic water. With a lot more quinine in it. We had quinine in the lab because um, one of Sarah's master students when I was there was doing work on, on this kind of stuff. And you taste like one little taste of this. Not Again, it's not the stuff that you have in tonic water, which is kind of, it was horrible. We were all told don't do it, so of course, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you get a taste in, right? Put your finger in. Oh, God! Seriously, you're walking like this? <laughs> you know, that, that, that sour, like a bit of lemon? It tastes like a bit a thousand lemons. 
but all at once. Very intense. And maybe then washed it down with some pickle juice. Like it was really sour. Birds also didn't like it. So it could be the case, and this is the conclusion Sarah came to in her PhD thesis, is that maybe the, the strategy here is just being as different as possible from the background. If you're really, really different, and novel, and you taste bad, you're going to fuck any... Um, one of Sarah's graduate students for her, was it her master's? No, it was her PhD. Um, Pam Reed, so Reed and Shuttleworth, and that's in about 92 or so, uh, found, in fact, that learning about cryptic prey, so turning on its head now, not looking at obvious, but cryptic, what makes something cryptic so not obvious, what makes it camouflage, is both its color and its shape. They were looking gray. So that's actually quite cool as well. So Sarah um, had a little continuity there working on that problem on and off for 20 years. So it's something about being different. We know the color ratio is about being as different as possible. Um, Aposematism must have evolved through kin selection. And we know that aposematic butterflies are gregarious. The neat thing is cryptic butterflies aren't. They don't live in family groups. So this means that their lifestyle, their gregarious lifestyle, goes together with their aposematism. And aposematic butterflies live longer than cryptic ones. And the notion here evolutionarily is they live longer so they can teach a lesson still. They're past their breeding age. Most bugs live, breed, die. Because they don't do parental care. Right? There's, there's no... Like, we live quite a bit past, and a lot of mammals and birds, uh, but especially mammals, um, and like, it's the, one of the ultimate example, live well past when we're uh, fertile. Right? Yes, men are fertile until they die. Uh, but, in fact, um, the older the man is, the data is coming up now, the more likely you're going to get uh, children with birth defects. So, while it's not nearly as uh, much of a, uh, an effect as uh, an older woman having a baby, it still does have an effect. And besides, women don't find old men typically attractive anyway. How right. old are we talking about males to have to be a problem? Because, I mean, what's prime for females is like, I don't know, 20, 25? What, for having a baby? Yeah, yeah. it's like 18 to 25, sure. Yeah, but for a male, like, what's a problem? Women well, the older a woman gets, the more likely they are to have a kid with birth defects. Yeah, and right? it happens 35 to 40 for males, but is that But I mean, the arbitrary lines are drawn at 35 to 40. Yeah. Right? Because basically, doctors have to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most people don't understand probabilities, so they don't say, you know, still everything's probably going to be fine, but there's a more of a chance now. So they just basically say, oh, you should be really careful if you have a baby after 35 to 40. Um, with men, it seems to be the stuff I've read, it's usually guys over 50. Right? That's where it starts to show up. But then again, it's, it makes sense that your sperm's going to be less viable the older you get. Okay. Then again, it doesn't even matter because men don't get a lot of mating opportunities when they're past about. Well, less. I mean, mating opportunities only just sex. When they're past, say, 50. It just doesn't happen very often. It does happen. 
But it's not nearly as common as men in their 20s and 30s being fathers for the first time. Right? But we live on. Why do we do that? Well, we do parental care. We also can do grandparental care, right? So I look after my kids now, in maybe 10 years, I would imagine, as weird as this is to think of, I'll probably be a grandfather. Um, and I'll look after that kid here, sure, in a quarter of my jeans. <laughs> Bucks don't do that. There's <laughs> no parental care at all. A lot of animals don't do it. Salmon. Spawn, die. A lot of them. Right? Most part. Oh, I fulfilled my purpose. I had sex. I passed my genes on. Now, so it's very uncommon like, in insects, especially, because it's not like you get evolve even you know or, or other you know uh, spiders even so arachnids think about it. Charlotte's web Charlotte dies spoiler alert Charlotte dies <laughs> but she's but she's all sad and then that freaking pig is all upset but Charlotte's like no I have to die but my babies will continue on and everybody loves these little spider eggs which is creepy because that's what I remember Teacher read it to us in grade three. I don't know. I remember crying. <laughs> Say that. I, I remember crying. Anyway. Pretty uncommon to go past me. What do we have here? So we got this uh, brightly colored species of caterpillars of British butterflies. Are more likely to be uh, aggregated in family groups than cryptic species. And this is Harvey and Paul Harvey. Um, number of species of caterpillars that live in family groups or solitarily nine napsomatic uh, living groups, eleven solitary. Over here in the cryptic level, none of them live in family groups. So they live longer and they live in family groups. So it seems pretty clear they're living longer to probably teach a lesson, because if, if it wasn't that, you'd expect. They have some of the family groups that are cryptic. Now, as you can see, some somatic do live in, uh, almost solitarily. In fact, more species of, of the ones that are already collected. Some other characteristics of most aposomatic bugs, and we're here, this is about monarchs. Uh, they, they have small territories. They roost communally. One of the neat things you can ever see is a whole tree full of monarch butterflies. It's an awesome, awesome thing to see. When they're migrating from like northern states and Canada all the way down to like Chile, which is pretty freaking cool. They go, oh, I don't know, 10,000 kilometers, 12,000 kilometers. have to land sexual maturity, unlike their cryptic cousins. If everything can make them live longer. They live longer, they can actually teach the lesson to the predators a little more easily, a lot more easily than if they had the regular life cycle and life history of their cryptic evolutionary relatives. Alright, sorry about that. Questions? With that? So it's cool stuff.
So we talk about mimicking, and I've talked about this before. Some insects are apostomatic and successful, so why not just copy the coloration? It's called Batesian mimicry. So the coloration is similar to toxic, the toxic species, but the prey item is not. And I think I've told you before that when you give, when you do a forced choice between a monarch butterfly and a viceroy butterfly, which is an, uh, a Batesian mimic of a monarch, the uh, birds will actually take the monarch because it looks less like a monarch butterfly than a viceroy butterfly. Which one of those is a monarch butterfly? Top. Yeah. But that one's more like one. That looks more like one. <laughs> and, it, and in fact, that's a vice and that's more likely to get, which is really quite amazing. But yeah, the top one's more. So that's a pretty good strategy. Piggyback. No, they're not poisonous, by the way. They're delicious. Then there's malaria mimicry. This is all species that share a coloration are dangerous. What do we have here? Well, we've got... That's a wasp. What does it look like? It looks like a bee or a wasp, right? You can get... So when you take something like that's got red, a sort of black and yellow stripes, they're dangerous. And everybody's kind of piggybacking on everybody else. We're all dangerous. We all sting. And we all have the same warning sign. Black and yellow stripes are scary. A lot of snakes use this too. A lot of snakes use this black, black, red, white on snakes. That means they can hurt you. Don't go near them. They're all malaria mimics of each other. The malaria mimic is a weird thing because it, we don't know what came first. For Batesian mimicry, we know for sure that it must have been the case that the monarch butterfly, for example, comes first, and then the viceroy piggybacks on it. It must have worked that way. You can also get characteristics that make a predator look like a prey item look like a predator. Is that like the eyes in the back of the wings? It's like that, yeah, that's a great example. So you'll see eyes in the eye spots and wings or on uh, caterpillars a lot of times. You'll also have cases here. The top two items here, top two guys here, uh, sorry, this guy here, that's actually a bee. That's a beetle. Look at the way it's all scrunched up. It walks with its legs all scrunched up like that, so from above, and it's got coloration, it makes it look like a bee. It's not a bee. Top here, we, up here we have uh, one, the one on the left is a fly. One on the right is a wasp. So they look like a dangerous species, but they're not. I love the one on the left here, though. That's all the way it walks is all squished up, so it looks from above like a bee. In fact, that looks more like a bee to me than that does. That's just me. Isn't that crazy? So conclusions about this, then we'll go on and we'll talk about social insects.
Um, evolution is an artifice. We're talking about predator-prey relationships. And as fast as anthropocentrism or, or, or being cryptic evolved, the species, the, the, the predator species, learns to detect the prey. And they can learn it over in the animal's lifetime, or they can learn it in an evolutionary sense. So the word learning, and I use being a little fast and loose with it. Questions on that stuff? All right. I was telling the class before, before some of you guys came in a little later. Um, that we got done what I wanted to get done, so I want to do social insects as I've talked about them. Then after we get this done, um, I'll send out an email to everybody in the class, and you'll be able to pick. I'll give you a choice of topics. Whatever gets the most votes, that's what we'll do. Okay? Because we can't just stop. That's crazy. Besides, I want to talk about social insects because they're cool. So you don't have this yet, but I'll, I'll be posting this at dayproject.com under the Animal Behavior tab, and you'll be able to download the, the slides here. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about social insects. Many insects live in hives and nests, you know, that kind of thing. And they have definite, uh, definite rules for different castes. And usually only one female lays the egg. And when I say caste, this is like the caste system in India, you know, very complex with the social organization, which is apparently now illegal in India, um, where only these guys do this job, only these guys do this job. So in a beehive, for example, a honey beehive, you might get certain, a certain caste that is doing nothing but cleaning out dead bodies. You've got another one that is doing nothing but foraging. You've got another one that's doing nothing but guarding. You've got another one that's doing nothing but caring for the brood, caring for the young. And they tend to be sterile. And I've got sterile in quotes because we've talked about this before. In fact, they, they usually actually aren't sterile. They just, quote, choose not to have young. Okay? Let's talk a little bit about the life history of the bumblebee. Mated females emerge in the spring after eight months of hibernation. They mated the previous autumn with a male. Maybe more than one, typically just one male. The colony in which she was hatched, so where she was born, they're all dead. This is bumblebees, this isn't honeybees. Different species. About 100 females left the colony previous winter. First thing she does is she's got to start a family, she's got to start a hive. So she goes out and she forages for pollen. It's springtime. There are flowers and pollen. 
a lot of times in the um, late autumn, you will see great big dumb looking bees flying around, and they're completely harmless, and you can just swat them away and they won't sting you. These are these are mating females. They're really big queen bees, like they're that big, and they're they're kind of fly like this. <laughs> they just don't fly very well, and because everybody else is dead. She did. We had a queen sitting on the side of our door in our house for like three days, just just standing right there. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to kill it. <laughs> I just I hate bees. So the first thing she does is she forages pollen. Pollen, of course, is uh, fan girls, stuff like that, and that's for egg formation. So she's made it. She's got male sperm in her. Now she's going to make eggs, and now she can labor. And then later she forages it for nectar. That's carbs, right? That's sugar. Nectar is just sugar. The nectar is stored in wax containers. These are really cool. She then lays eggs in the hull of pollen in the hive, which is a great name. It's like a band, maybe, the Hall of Pollen. Some sort of British stadium rock band from the 70s. You know. A progressive rock thing, like a combination of say yes and I don't know. The first brood that then are born, uh, actually, sorry, they're not really born, are sterile females. They aren't really sterile. They go out, now they forage. So now she's got a little family going on. They go out and they forage. So they go out looking for nectar, basically, and some pollen. Is it the first eggs that she lays for mm -hmm. female, or is yep. it just the first hatch? That's the first, the first egg she lays for females. Yeah. Is that same? Last thing's the males. Yeah, how do they do that? We'll get there very shortly. The second brood are also sterile females. They're cared for by the first brood. So she's not just, she's in the hall of pollen laying eggs. She's not doing anything else. The third brood are fertile females and males. So now we're basically laying queens at this point. And the first and the second brood take care of these fertile females. The way you make queens um, is that the second brood secretes something called royal jelly onto the uh, containers that the, that the larvae are in. And it causes a change in them and makes them bigger and makes them, you know, queen bees, which is kind of cool. So any female can become a queen. Any female can become a queen. Yeah, please. So every, it's always the second one that does this? Yes. The third? Yeah. So the second takes care of the third, the third is queens and males. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, neat, the neat and kind of weird thing about it is it's very, it's regimented like this. And this is why um, with uh, sterile, with, sorry, with, with social insects, and we'll see in a second, this is really the only way it could work. 
we end up with this kind of situation where um, we get almost this Orwellian organization of society inside of Eli. Right? Or in Anthill. This happens in Anthill's too. It's not always one, two, three. You might have a whole bunch. Bumblebees are simple. Right? They're pretty simple bees. And the hives aren't huge. Not like a honeybee hive where you're going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of bees. This is, this is going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bees. With bumblebees, typically. Are else haploid? These are all haploid, yes. The, no, sorry. The males, the females are all haploid, the males, oh, sorry, the females are all diploid, the males are haploid. Almost there. The third brood leaves, the males go off and mate with other bees they find. The females that have mated, hibernate. Everybody else the male of the males have made it to die. Males can't even stink. They don't even have stingers. They are sperm carriers. They need nothing else with that. It's just a reproduction factory. That's what a bee colony is. So in a honeybee hive, for example, you'll have way more uh, broods. More just not one, two, three. Because this is in the order... This is over a few weeks. So we're talking about three months and then one month and then hibernation, so four months. With honeybees, <coughs> it tends to be longer um, because you can get a lot more broods as well. So it's a great big bee making machine. That's, that's, what a, that's what a beehive is. Yes, please. Is that why there's more masks that the other two groups can care for them? Because then the males need to pass on their seed and the females need to. The females, the males go out, they find other females to mate with because how they make their sisters. Right. Um, and they mate with females from other colonies that are somewhere nearby. Those females that are mated, they go out and they hibernate. Is that why they're more masks? So they yes. care for them? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. And they don't have to care for anybody except that the females are going to have a whole beehive to themselves. And the males, their only use is to be a certain okay. This is called eusociality. Or you, these are also called eusocial insects. Now, eusociality has also been found recently in a kind of shrimp. Where you get a queen shrimp. Which I'm sure is delicious because it would be bigger. <laughs> I love shrimp. So for youth sociality, we need the following. We need overlapping generations, and we've seen that, right? Because we have first brood, second brood, third brood. We need cooperative care of the young, and we see that as well. The mother isn't doing any parental care here. Their sisters are doing the parental care. The sisters are doing it for themselves. In reference to a song from 1983. Um, we have sterile casts. Now again, they may not actually be sterile. It may in fact be possible for them to lay eggs and have males, but they don't. So they are de facto sterile. In insects, eusociality occurs in the Hymenoptera, which is a super family, which includes the ants, the bees, the wasps.
So it shows up in all these, ants, bees, and wasps. There are, by the way, there are solitary bees. There are kinds of bees that live on their own. Okay? Um, they're thought to be very evolutionarily old bees. Perhaps stupid. Why wouldn't you just make a big hive? There are wasps as well um, that don't that, that live pretty much in solitary. Uh, in Isoptera, those are termites. Those are termites. And Homoptera, which are aphids. And that is about the level oh, 20 years ago, people finally said, yeah, aphids are social. They live in these little nests, etc. So it shows up there. Now, again, not all aphids. Here, I saw and Homoptera, and also the, the shrimp I talked about aren't actually eusocial, but if you look at the definition, you could say under certain circumstances that bees were not eusocial because, in fact, we don't have sterile casts really. It's just the females don't lay eggs. It's just, it's, it's, they sort of don't, they choose not to, but they could. It's not really sterile. They're sterile sort of by choice. I think probably change the definition from sterile to non-reproducing, right? Hey, David, I know we talked about this last year. Yeah. There's some mammals that, like, I think, qualify as eusocial, like, you know, whatever wolves and like dingoes and stuff, like pack animals, or maybe mm-hmm. like one breeding pair and the rest care for the animals. Oh yeah, but in that case, um, you don't have the de- the division of labor that's so clear. That's one of the really important things to the overlapping generations and the division of labor, where you do this and nothing else. Now, it might be that you do this only at certain times of your life. So, for example, uh, with, with, with honeybees, they start out caring for young, then they forage, then they guard, then they die. Um, it, but it's not the case as well that the females don't make, wouldn't make if they. Uh, sorry, the male, other males wouldn't mate if they had a chance. They just, it's, it's, it's done through intimidation and fights. Whereas here, we've got all these females, and we only have one, we've got a breeding pair, you're right, but the other females will have to take a chance and mate now and then. It doesn't happen. So it's pretty clear here. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Now this is where it gets neat and interesting and weird. What we have in Hymenoptera is what's called haplodiploidy. Um, we know that eusociology, eusociology, that would be the study of uh, eusociality have, has, 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 has evolved 11 separate times just in Hymenoptera. So they said, not all bees, for example, are eusocial. Some are not. Um, but it's well, seven times just there, versus eleven times. Why is that? Well, serial females are actually very closely related. It doesn't pay to have young. It pays more to take care of your sisters. It pays, it pays off genetically. 
as they are more closely related to you than any potential offspring. So how does this work? A female, the, the top line makes complete sense. It looks just like us. The female is related to her father by 0.5. The female is related to her mother by 0.5. To her, father, her potential son by 0.5. And to her potential daughter by 0.5. That sounds just like us. Because they're diploid, the females. The males only have half the genes, half the genetic material. The male is related to his father is zero. You know why? Males don't have fathers. They are unfertilized eggs. That's what males are. So males don't have fathers. So in, in, in the beehive, there's no one watching Star Wars because it's with a look on your father. It couldn't work because males don't have fathers. The male to his mother... When the male looks up, think about it, you're looking up, so you're on a, a tree, like a father and mother, goes up and sees mom. Well, the mom laid, that's the queen, laid an unfertilized egg. From the male's perspective, he's related to his mother by 1.0. Right? Because she shares all of his genes. Interestingly, when the mother looks down the sort of mother to son, on the chart, she looks down to son, and she only shares half of her genes with him because there's only half of her genes in a sex cell. So from her perspective, the relationship is 0.5. From his perspective, it's 1.0. Male to his daughter. Well, she shares all of his genes. Yeah, she's got other, she's got the female's genes too, but that's not important to him. So, so far, I'm going to say you understand this, not does it make sense, because I know it's weird. But do you see how that could be? The, the male shares all of his genes with his mom, but she shares only half of her genes with her son? Because it's, it's diploid, right? Or haploid. Now, a female, then, to her brother would only be 0.25. A female to her sister is 0.75. And I have a slide in a second that explains why that's the case. The males with the brother, male to the sister, that's easy, it's 0.5. So why would you, as a female, want to have young? Your sister's more related to you than your young would be.
Okay. Okay. Hopefully this explains it. So this shows sort of how the haploid diploidy works. Remember, males are just clones of half of the female's chromosomes. So your sisters are either 75% related, 100% related, or 50% related to you. Which means, on average, your sisters are 75% related to you. If you're a female. Because they can be exactly like you. That's 100. They can be 75% like you, or they can be 50% like you. As you see here. The average of 100 and 75 and 50 is 75. So on average, you relate your sisters by 0.75. Don't worry, these slides will be uploaded. So now you can see why you would want to not have any young, even though you could. You could lay on fertilized eggs. You don't even have to mate. You lay on fertilized eggs, you get sons. If you're female. But why do it? You get less out of that than you do out of taking care of your sisters. And remember, that brood, the next brood you're taking care of, for example, are the ones you're going out forging for everybody. They're all your super sisters, 0.75. Somebody's climbing through there. I'm going to zoom right in. <laughs> all right. So deal with termites then. Termites are haplodiploid. <laughs> Uh-oh. So it's not just haplodiploid that makes you be social. And neither are the uh, shrimp I talked about. They're just like us, except that they're termites. And they eat wood and they're bugs. They're very social, though. We do have sterility. We have females that don't lay eggs. We have one female that lays eggs. And there's actually a king termite. And the queen is nothing but an egg-laying machine. And that picture is disgusting. Because the thing in the middle is the queen termite. That's a great big haunted sack full of fertilized eggs attached to it. And what if I can find the king in that picture? I used to have a great picture of a king termite. No, I can't see him. It just makes me want to. Oh, I don't like it. I'm opposed to that. <laughs> I'm just opposed to that. I think it's wrong. It violates the laws of God and man. King termite's huge. He's like four times bigger than the other termites. He guards the male. And he's kind of got great big claws and stuff. He's kind of cool looking. Not creepy like that. I always thought, by the way, that the alien in the movie Aliens, they were you social. Right? You got the queen. You got all the eggs. She's guarding it. Just saying. Difference here is, don't have acid for blood. And when you see a termite nest, you don't have to nuke it from orbit. <laughs> We're screwed, man. 
So they're weird. The shrimp are weird too. There's, I've read one paper on these eusocial shrimps, so it's a new discovery. But there are these colonies living in a nest of shrimps, and there's one female, and she's laying all the eggs. Well, if you want to explain termites, that's great. Uh, it's got something to do. This is the explanations that I've heard. Um, something with the food source. They only have uh, one kind of food they eat. It's, it's efficient. The idea here is efficiency. So that might work because they really only eat one kind of thing. It's something to that effect. There are social, they fit the definition. Not sure. The haplodiploidy one makes sense. While you're at it, tell me if you, see if you can explain naked mole rats. These are mammals. That's what they look like. <laughs> they look like they're the worst things. The little mammals. They look like they're described as penises with teeth. <laughs> when I was doing my presentation. I guess last one. Yeah. Before, like, social animal. Yeah. I, was, I, I googled view social on Google Images. Yeah. Four pictures of that popped up. Oh yeah. Because it's fascinating and terrifying. It's terrifying. It's like look at that thing. Yeah. Some of them are close-ups. Yeah. Angles. Yeah. It's all wrong. I'm opposed to this as well. <laughs> um, these things live in. What is, in essence, a hive? Uh, they live, I think, in Egypt, North Africa, mostly. Is that correct? Because you did your thing on, on social insect cluster, uh, or new sociality. Um, they live, I think, in North Africa, and they have like what is like an ant colony. There's one female. The other females don't breed. So both the termites and the naked mole rats, we have eusociality, but we don't have the haplodiploid reason. We just have weirdness. Again, here we're talking, uh, typically people say it's something with scarcity of resources and efficiency, things like that. Very scarce resources. And the female is much bigger than the other ones. So normal, when I say normal, it's the norm. Most things, plants and animals, and everything else that reproduces sexually have regular diploid reproduction, not haplodiploid. All right. We can fit the in. Two is one. Excellent. Um, social insects are a great example of predictions of genetics and evolution at work. Um, because, at least in the haplodiploid case, uh, the termites and naked mole rats, however, show that eusociality is not just about haplodiploid. It makes complete sense within the hymenoptera where we have a haplodiploid reproductive system and we get 11 different times where evolution has allowed a, 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 a eusociality to show up. This shows, though, that it's that gene-environment interaction again. It's not just the genetics, because we also have solitary bees, solitary wasps, and then we have the termites, the naked mole rats, and the aphids, and the shrimp, which... Sounds like some kind of weird all-you-can-eat buffet. And those ones are totally normal diploid reproduction, yet we get a new social species. I think it might make a little more sense to start viewing new sociality as a sliding scale uh, more than it is and isn't. It just seems to me.
Questions on this stuff? Cool. Like I said, I'll be posting this uh, later on on the website, uh, DaveBroadback.com. Look, look there. It's faster than using the university. It's way faster than the evil CMS. I hate the CMS. So fine, I pay 12 bucks a month for my own web hosting at Squarespace.com. <laughs> they, they should pay me for that. That's like an ad. I just did. Um, and then I'll send out a, a, a note to everybody in the class, and you can pick. I'll have like four topics, and you can pick a couple of them, and we'll, we'll do one or two of those. Okay? Thanks, guys.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.